This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Yeah, you may have known this. If you're a sports fan, if you're a football fan, you probably did know this. You may not have known this. But today was free agency day in the Canadian Football League, meaning today was the day the Hamilton Tiger Cats were going to go out and spend all the money they've ever made and sign all the good free agents and guarantee that this team was going to finally... And all these years of frustration and win the Grey Cup this year at long last. Rick Zamperin from CHML joins me. Rick, uh, that happened. I understand. They signed everybody, and this team is now unstoppable. Uh, no, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> it was It was an, I'll, well, I'll use the word. To me, it was an underwhelming free agent kickoff day today. I have one word for today's opening day of CFL free agency, and I'm not sure how to spell it other than to say, <sighs> yeah, yeah, no, as in, as in a yawn. Absolutely. And, and I want to get to what happened today as far as the few signings that there were, especially for the Ticats. But here's the problem the CFL has, as far as I'm concerned. And you and I talked about this on their draft day, I recall. But this is another one of those big days on their calendar as far as getting attention. Not only was it very much, I thought, very much underplayed in the in, in the wider media and the uh, in the awareness people had of it, but then all of a sudden you get a big Raptors trade and you get the Montreal Canadiens firing their coach and suddenly the CFL is not front page news in most places anymore. Rick, it's third, fourth, fifth place in the paper. Yeah, the conspiracy theorists certainly are uh, out today, and uh, they're saying that uh, you know the NHL and the NBA conspired against the CFL to put them towards the back pages once again. But you know, what are the odds that you know the CFL and, and as you said, you know, one of their marquee dates on the calendar, free agency opens. This is you know it can be a time that. Uh, can make or break uh, a team's season. If they lose out on a big free agent that they're going after or they lose a high-priced item that they're trying to keep, um, they may make a mistake and overpay a certain uh, you know, a certain player here or there or, or just make a bad decision uh, or a great decision. But lo and behold, the National Hockey League has a, an enormous story in which the Montreal Canadiens fire their head coach, Michel Therrien, and not only that, but they hire Claude Julien, who was just turfed by the Bruins, uh, and it's basically a replay of 2003 in which Montreal fired Terry and hired Julian. Hired uh, him from the Hamilton Bulldogs. Yeah, and you know, so fast forward 14 years and it's happened again. So not only that, and as you mentioned, the Raptors swing a, a fairly substantial deal to get their team out of the doldrums and acquiring Serge Ibaka from Orlando uh, for Terrence Ross and a draft pick. So you know, those two items, as well as a bunch of other things, have really uh, uh, have really uh, taken down the CFL free agent uh, frenzy, if you will, today. All right. I'm almost embarrassed to ask this question, but I will do it because there, as you, you alluded to it, and there are people who really believe this, the conspiracy theorists. Uh, do you believe there is any chance that Bell which ironically owns TSN, so it seems sort of antithetical to believe it, But and TSN is the CFL channel, but do you believe there's any way that the Raptors and or the Canadians intentionally tried to steal the thunder of the CFL today? I I would say there is a a negative chance, not a zero chance, a negative chance of that, (laughs) because I think guys like Habsdia and Mark Bergevin, uh, and uh, certainly Masai Ujiri with the Raptors are, are looking at the CFL to say, man, we've got to steal some of their thunder because they, they don't really have to. You know, the National Hockey League still the number one item uh, on the minds of Canadian sports fans, and, and 
uh, MLB or the Blue Jays, and, and certainly the Raptors, probably uh, you know one B and one C in that regard. Uh, I, I don't think they have to do anything, uh, even of, of, of that uh, of that nature, that magnitude, to uh, to kind of overshadow the Canadian Football League. You know, certainly uh, this is CFL off season. Obviously, uh, you know a lot of the major items, even from years gone by, have not hit. Uh, the front pages of newspapers or been at the top of uh, TV sportscasts or radio sportscasts. You know, the, the one that I can recall that really kind of blew up kind of the sports world was the Ricky Ray trade. And, and not only because of what he was traded for, who he was traded for, but the fact that he was going to Toronto in advance of the 100th anniversary of the Grey Cup. So that was huge news. But apart from that, uh, those types of uh, massive stories in the CFL have been few and far between. But no, I, I don't think any league or any GM or any uh, person, player, or coach in any sport would want to overshadow uh, any other league, uh, you know, on purpose. What does the CFL do then to start becoming more across the country? I, look, in Saskatchewan, the CFL is the news. In Hamilton, it's getting attention. But what does the CFL do to stand out from this then? Because it seems to, at every turn almost, get buried behind something else. How does it fix this? Well, you know, I was I was wondering because I, I watched the first I don't know fifteen twenty minutes uh, of PSN um, and their Sports Center edition tonight as they usually do. I'll go between them and you know a bunch of the other TV stations, radio stations to see what's happening. And I was thinking, you know, if if the Terrian deal didn't go down or the firing didn't go down and and the Raptors didn't make a move, you know, where would CFL free agency uh, lie in their ranking of you know the the most important sports story of the day to to the least. And for the first 15, 20 minutes, there, there was not even a mention of, of CFL free agency, which was very odd because TSN is the national broadcaster of the league. And you would have thought that at least they'd have some kind of passing mention off the top to say, hey, it's free agency day. We'll get to that in a minute. But first, now we got some, you know, some big breaking news here. Because we know uh, what they do for hockey on free agency day. Yeah, well, totally. I mean, there's, uh, you know, all the networks, uh, you know, get, uh, you know, extensive coverage of uh, you know the, their uh, NHL free agent frenzy, not only when the deadline hits, but yeah, yeah we're, we're talking you know four, five, six hours of kind of a pregame or preamble to say, hey, this is coming up. Here's the available free agents. Here's some of the targets. Here's the teams involved, you know, buyers and sellers, all that kind of thing. But uh, for the CFL, I think they're slowly getting there. We're seeing a lot of um, you know action on the cfl.ca website they're doing kind of hourly updates to say hey this has just gone on or you know this particular player is still waiting for a deal here and there um, but I, I think it's going to be many more years I think I'm very confident saying that before this sort of cfl free agent frenzy a broadcast or telecast kind of hits the airwaves if I'm T- if I'm the CFL, I got to be honest. I am rip snorting mad at the at TSN right now because you've got five channels plus I think they have an extra one for <laughs> TSN one or whatever it is. You've got at least five channels, and you are the national carrier. You are the network that is supposed to be pushing this. Put put it on one channel all day long, even if nothing's happening. At least show some love. At least throw it out there so someone flipping around will go, "Oh, it's free agent day." I, I if I'm the CFL, I'm feeling pretty miffed at what's happened. At the very least, and, and we see this during CFL draft day or draft night, is that a TSN will do like a one hour, even a two hour kind of broadcast, or even a web stream. And say, "Hey, this is going on. These are some of the you know the, the new crop of CFL players." 
Uh, you would think they would do it to, at least for an hour. Uh, you know, I think they did a shorty today. I think they did a half hour. They did something. But again, you've got five channels. Yeah. Surely, and, and I, I didn't look, and so I stand to be corrected on this, Rick, but I would bet money that at least for part of the day, the same thing was appearing on at least two channels. So you could have split those up. And you could have said, we're going to put somebody in there and we're going to just have a panel discussion all day. It just, to me, it seems like it's, you know, it's missing the opportunity. Anyway, let's move along because the Ticats, um, not a ton of stuff today, but they did just in the last few minutes, they apparently have re-signed Emmanuel Davis, who's a defensive back. And they also signed another defensive back today. So a team that had huge, 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 should I keep going? Huge, huge, huge problems in their secondary last year seems to have Rick done something to try to shore that up. Well, you know what? We met with uh, head coach and VP of player personnel, Ken Austin, the other day to do kind of a, a CFL free agent preview. And I asked him, you know, is there one particular position group that you want to improve? And he kind of smirked and said, yeah, but I'm not, you know, going to let you know what that is. We all know what it is. It was the secondary. I mean, yeah, they were much maligned in terms of the injury bug last season, but when uh, you know, players were on the field and given an opportunity to perform more often than not, they did not get the job done. So consider this on opening day, uh, 2017, we could see a tie cat secondary consisting of Emmanuel Davis, who's just resigning Abdul Kane, who they lured over from the Ottawa red blacks, the defending champion red blacks, a guy who has 12 interceptions in his three CFL seasons, Craig Butler, if he's healthy, Courtney, Steven, Damon Washington, if he's healthy. I mean, those five guys, uh, are a huge improvement, even on paper, over what uh, the Ticats put on the field last year. So I think so far that's a pretty big check mark, considering if they get you know the the, the injured guys back healthy and performing as they were in years past, uh, that is going to be a much improved secondary. When you look at what happened today, though, and it's not it's only a piece of the puzzle, but when you look mm-hmm. the uh, the Red Blacks were very active. Uh, the defending Grey Cup champion Red Blacks were very active. The uh, Argonauts, not so much. They signed backup quarterback Jeff Matthews from from Hamilton. Um, the Alouettes signed a former Ticat quarterback. I mean, there's not a ton of movement except for the Red Blacks in the East. That has Hamilton cl- has Hamilton closed the gap at all based on what they did today with Ottawa. I don't think the gap is actually that large, really. And I think if, if the gap had to be closed, I mean, we're talking, uh, you know, it's a very minute kind of gap. I think with the retirement of Henry Burris, I think that the backup quarterback situation in Ottawa is a big question mark if Trevor Harris goes down with an injury or, or does not perform. He had a fantastic start to the season last year. You look at a free agent uh, in Ottawa like Chris Williams. Do they re-sign him when they do? Is he going to be as uh, healthy as he was in, in past years? You can say the same for Hamilton and Andy Santuz. And I know that Austin wants to uh, sign him to a quote-unquote creative deal, knowing that he's coming back from an injury. I think the Ticats right now are very close, if not on par with the Ottawa Blacks. They could play 10 games in a row over the next 10 weeks, and I think both teams would either split or maybe one team would win six out of the 10. I mean, th- these are pretty too close uh, units, uh, two well-coached teams, uh, offense, defense, special teams, pretty solid. Um, I-, I think the gap is very minute. You mentioned Chris Williams. How about bringing him back to Hamilton? <laughs> that would be interesting. <laughs> I- I'd be all for it. Because, you know, I-, I think he's a heck of a ball player. Obviously, there's a lot of off-the-field things that would have to be wrinkled out, but you know, the Ticats, uh, I'm hearing, are very interested in bringing Terrell Sinkfield back to yep. the fold. 
They still have, obviously, Fantuz that they're looking at. Uh, you know, Luke Castro's no slouch when he comes back and he's healthy. Chad Owens is still a possibility to re-sign. You know, Brian Tin showed some pretty good things towards the end of last year. Karen's Tolliver re-signing the other day. It's all Brandon Banks. Uh, they got a lot of weapons on offense. Uh, certainly, I think the focus should be and has been improving the secondary and, and probably adding a, maybe another piece or two on defense. For those who have forgotten, by the way, it was Chris Williams who left Hamilton in a very, very acrimonious debate. What do you want to call it? A contract dispute, whether he thought he should be able to go to the NFL and they said he shouldn't. And it was, it was pretty, I, I can't remember a nastier divorce in the CFL, honestly. So it is joking that he would come back here. I think he would, uh, he would sign up for the Hamilton Hurricanes before he would sign up for the Hamilton Tiger <laughs> yeah, Cats, both, quite both honestly. Sides would have to swallow a, a large amount of pride for sure. Do you anticipate, there are still names out there, do you anticipate the Tiger Cats doing anything big and splashy the rest of the way forward in free agency? Or or is this team with the money that it's got committed to guys, I mean, they signed, they had a big splashy re-signing last year with Ted Laurent, that was that was costly, they've made some others. Do you, do you see money here, and do you see interest here to make another big, big splash in free agency? Or is this team looking to basically hold where it was? I think there's not, you know, looking at the, the, the crop of potential free agents, I'm not sure any team, unless they signed a bunch of these guys, could really create a huge flash because there's not really a flashy kind of, uh, you know, elite of the elite kind of players. I know Emmanuel Davis is one of the best DBs, you know, Ernest Jackson, one of the best receivers. Chris Williams would be in that category too. But there isn't that one, you know, kind of Ricky Ray or a Henry Burris or, you know, an, an absolute game-changing superstar that is up for grabs. And I'd probably put Ted Laurent in that category, you know, last year as well. I mean, a heck of a ball player, probably the best free agent available, but not one guy who can absolutely take over a ball game. I and mean, we're not talking about a, a Joe Monford or a Doug Flutie. We're talking about, um, you know, A-list players, but not a, you know, future Hall of Fame guy who's just going to, uh, you know, change the fortunes of a team in one fell swoop. It will be interesting. I mean, the, the Ticats have with reasons, have gone from two Grey Cup appearances to an Eastern final appearance to an Eastern semifinal appearance. They appear, based on playoff performance, to be heading in the wrong direction. A big chunk of that, I think you would probably agree, is the fact that over the last number of years, injuries have just decimated them. And it'll be, it would be very interesting, Rick, to see what kind of team this is if they were healthy problem is you don't really know and so you have to make some free agent decisions based on what you've seen I guess or based on anticipating what they do look like if they're healthy if they could ever stay healthy but boy it it becomes a real difficult decision to try to make if you're uh, if you're making those decisions if you're Kent Austin because you really have I don't think he really knows what what team he has if they were all healthy. Yeah, and, you know, the fact of the matter is you can't predict who is going to get injured and who's going to be healthy. I mean, it's just one of those things. These guys play a violent sport. You know, Rico Murray's a perfect example. He's a free agent looking possibly for a new home. Ken Austin's looking at a Rico Murray to say, yeah, heck of a ball player when he's on the field. But more often than not, he's not been on the field over the last two, three, four seasons. So you, you do have to weigh that into the equation when a player has that history. But um, when you look at a player who hasn't missed any football games, you don't really anticipate, yeah, he may or may not get injured. You're just looking at past performance, you know, what he's going to cost our team, and, uh, you know, go from that. Uh, Rick Zamper and I will let you get back to uh, your sexy Valentine's night plans, whatever they may be. All I can say is it involves cheesecake. <laughs> I I will not even press that a second further to find out. Enjoy your cheesecake. Enjoy Valentine's Day. Thanks for taking some time tonight. See you, Scott.
That is Rick Zamperin of 900CHML. You can hear him all the time. He's on all the time, and that's good because you want to hear him here all the time. Uh, but it does, you know what, It's it, the Ticats have a real conundrum. Because you, th- I think they think they've got a pretty good team when they're healthy. But they just are never healthy. So what do you do? Do you build for depth based on anticipating injuries because that's what has always happened? Or do you say, no, we're finally going to keep our fingers crossed that this is the year we remain healthy. And we're going to see. Because I, like Rick, I don't really anticipate them going out and blowing a ton of dough on a bunch more big, big, splashy signings. I think what you see now is pretty much what you're going to get. And you're going to hope and pray that this is a team that finally will stay on the field. And if they don't, too bad, so sad. If they do, maybe they are as good as advertised. You cannot plan for your superstars to get hurt. You can plan for to have depth at positions where you feel like you will need depth. But if you enter a season planning on Kalaros getting hurt planning on banks getting hurt then you will fail and so you have to enter the season with the assumption that the guys will play 18 games and then another two or three in the playoffs however many they they end up going because if you spend money to back up your best players then you are wasting money because you should be spending that money on starting players elsewhere you're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. There are beliefs. There are people who believe now that there have been, that there are some new chambers in King Tut's tomb, off King Tut's tomb, that some instruments have found echoes or something that suggests there might be openings, there might be hollows in these areas. And so this has, of course, excited the archaeological community greatly because why wouldn't it? If there were tombs, maybe, or rooms or chambers off King Tut's tomb, which was the biggest archaeological discovery maybe ever, this has all kinds of potential. However, is it really the case? Well, we're going to find out because in the next few weeks... Uh, some Italian archaeologists are going to begin trying to find out if this is actually true. Dr. Andrew Wade is an assistant professor of anthropology at McMaster. He's the founder of the Mummipedia Project, focusing on the radiological study of mummified and skeletal human and animal remains and the materials and technologies used in their preservation. Uh, He joins me now. Dr. Wade, thanks for doing this tonight. No, you're very welcome. I'm glad to be here. So we hear this story. We've known about this for a little while now. I guess we first heard about these possible chambers. It's almost a year, but it's just now that they're really going to get at this. Is this likely or is this a lot of hype and we're going to be greatly disappointed when we find out nothing exists? Oh, well, we will be disappointed, I suppose, if if nothing's there. But yeah, it's been going on for a while now. There was a, a set of scans that were done. Um, by Dr. Nicholas Rees from the University of Arizona. They were doing uh, laser scanning of the inside of the tomb to to produce reconstructions of it. And he noticed in the scans that perhaps there were some areas that, you know, some plastered over doors, essentially, uh, that lead to other chambers in the tomb. And and they did some radar scans. Well, usually we use it for archaeological looking under the ground to see if there's voids and so on. But they turned it on inside and uh, tried to see if there were any voids behind the walls, and the uh, they were pretty confident that they had something there. Uh, but a second set of scans that were done uh, last year by the National Geographic Society, they well, 
they didn't make any any conclusions off of it, but they also didn't come out and say that it was, uh, you know, confirm those findings. So the results of the Italian team will be really interesting to see. Well, and a couple of years, well, not maybe it's not a couple of years ago, a little while ago, I remember reading that there, the, the initial thought or one of the initial thoughts was this could be the hidden, undiscovered, unknown tomb of Queen Nefertiti. And I don't know everything, certainly about Egyptology, but I know that name. And it would seem that if this was the discovery of her tomb, man, this is a, this is a massive thing. Yeah, that would really be exceptional. I mean, Tut is a pretty minor player as things go. Really, the only reason we know as, you know, uh, as much as we do popularly about him is because his tomb was uh, largely undisturbed. Um, so if this meant uh, that a tomb of a pharaoh, whether it was Nefertiti or another pharaoh, um, was behind these walls, uh, then it would also be undisturbed uh, and would be, I mean, truly exceptional. Well, it, exceptional for a variety of reasons. One of them is um, when this, what was, what was the year that this was discovered? Was it just early into the 1900s that King Tut's tomb was found? Uh, 1920s. 1920s. Okay. So long before any kind of technology or anything, this, this would be something that where people would be able to actually be seeing this almost live happening, whether they actually showed it live, but it would, the technology, the media that exists, the social media, everything else, this would be a, maybe not a bigger thing because it was a pretty darn big thing back then, but it would be enormous. And, and also doctor, it would be, it seems, and a lot of people are saying this would be just so important for Egypt because a number of issues, a number of things that have gone on have really chilled the tourist market over there. Uh, and something like this would really light a fire under it again. Oh, that, that's true for certain. Uh, the, it's hard to underestimate the importance of the tourism industry and uh, an ancient Egyptian tourism and the mummies to Egypt's economy and, and, and so on. So it would be just fantastic if, if there was something there, and I, I'd say fairly certainly that it would be televised and uh, broadcast uh, on the Internet, uh, probably live-streamed. This is an opportunity uh, to, would be an opportunity to, to look at an undisturbed, intact pharaoh, because uh, Nefertiti was a, was a pharaoh in her own right. She was co-regent with her, her husband, Akhenaten. Um, and we would be able to do it um, in an amazing amount of detail, but non-destructively this time. Yeah, I was going to ask um, you, how is this going to be done? Because surely they're not going to just blast a hole through a wall. Right. Well, this is the, why we've had you know, several rounds of scans. Um, how they would actually go about making that opening, I, I don't know. They'll have to have a very good plan for that because they would be disturbing. Uh, that wall is plastered and painted with, uh, with images of, of King Tut and meeting Osiris and so on. So they would have to have a very good plan for uh, perhaps going around, uh, perhaps entering from a, another angle. But um, they would they would need to be absolutely certain before they did anything that was destructive there. And once we got to a mummy, we'd want to apply the same sorts of uh, precautions and, and do things like CAT scans and MRIs rather than what they did to Tut in the, the early days, which was to unfortunately cut him out of his sarcophagus. Uh, and he, he's in pretty rough shape these days. If they do find something, if this turns out to be legit, if it turns out that this is a tomb or that this is a burial chamber or whatever we find, 
Is there anything at this point that we could find, do you believe, that would significantly enhance our understanding of that era, of the tombs, of the kings? Or do we have at this point a pretty firm grasp and it would largely just be very entertaining and very interesting, but only maybe solidifying what we already know? Oh, no, there's, there's so much that we, we still don't know. Uh, one thing that comes to mind is, is just the lineage of, of the pharaohs there. So we're fairly certain that Tutankhamun was Akhenaten's son, but we're not sure who his mother was and what that meant for the rest of the, the royal line. Um, we want to know more about how pharaohs were treated um, in, in their funeral preparations so that we can understand more about the ancient Egyptian ideas about death and the afterlife and uh, a lot of that information has been lost because of the looting that was uh, perpetrated against the tombs over the you know centuries and and decades and, and so on uh, in the recent past as well. You mentioned that the scanning that was done and and how they did it by turning the device, the radar or whatever the sonar sideways and going through the wall. But have we have explorers have archaeologists now basically gone over the entire valley of the kings with sonar to find out if we've missed any tombs or or um, or could yeah. there still be others under there that we don't know of yet but there could be um i think by this point we're fairly certain we found most if not all of them um but there's always the chance to to surprise us and and this is why we continue to do the work and to Every time we get a new piece of technology that we can apply, especially the non-destructive ones, um, we we discover new things. We're not necessarily looking for them at the time, but uh, you know, we're there studying something else, like the uh, you know the, the art of the of the tomb, and discover that perhaps there's another chamber. I was going to say because the, if it was if it was a case where we have now very confidently found everything, that that to me would seem almost. A little depressing. It would be bad for the business of archaeology because the point is you've always, there's always something else to find. And there's the dream, the hope, the excitement. And if we've gotten to the point where basically everything has been found, what do you do then? Well, we'll never find everything. I mean, (laughs) even when we're talking about if we did find everything that remains, what about all the things that we've lost over the years? There are gaps in our understanding that uh, we can fill in uh, through studying what we do have more uh, more thoroughly uh, and in different ways so that we can try to understand the parts that we've lost as well. All right, I'm going to give you a very poor example, and I grant you that it's a poor example right off the bat. However, you probably remember as well as I do back in about 1984, 85, that Geraldo Rivera did the un- the opening of Al Capone's vault. Uh, which was one of the biggest shams and, and embarrassments in live TV history when they ripped down the wall and there was this big vault behind and they were going to find gold and booze and cars and everything else and there was nothing. Does the same, is it embarrassing? Does the same sense of that feeling happen if it turns out that nothing is here or is this a different scenario from that one? It's a different scenario. It, it would be disappointing, Um I, I don't know that it would be embarrassing. We don't have uh, any real solid expectations that this is, in fact, the, the tomb of Nefertiti or anything like that. It could be simply a, another chamber to Tut's tomb, which should give us some, some additional information about Tut. If it turns out to be more than that, that's fantastic. But, uh, you know, we, we 
discover new chambers to tombs and, and open new areas and excavate new cities and things all the time, uh, most of the time we don't find anything super exciting. It's, uh, you know, it's all about uh, the potsherd that, that indicates that, you know, a particular group was here at a particular time and, and what that tells us about uh, people moving around the landscape in the ancient world and how they traded and what they ate and how they lived their lives. So. Uh, for an anthropologist, an archaeologist, it's still going to be very exciting. For the public expecting, uh, you know, the next pharaoh's tomb undisturbed, uh, it'll be disappointing. But I don't think it'll be uh, uh, embarrassing. There was a time, uh, again, back probably in the 80s, that I remember standing in line at the Art Gallery of Ontario when all of King Tut's treasures were brought open to go watch. And the lineups were around the block to watch to see the, the crown and the everything that was there. If it turns out that there really is something, could you imagine, could, I mean, could this spur something like that? Could this spur that kind of interest again? Do you believe that it's, that that interest is latent and is out there and is potential again, that, you know, if, if they really found something amazing, this kind of thing could happen again, that we could become that fascinated with Egyptology? Oh, I certainly hope so. Uh, and, and really, if it did turn out to be something like Nefertiti's tomb, it would, uh, it would likely beggar Tut's riches, uh, which we already find very impressive, but he's a very minor uh, pharaoh. He died well before he was expected to as a as a young man, and uh, his tomb is put together fairly quickly. Nefertiti's tomb, if it's back there, uh, would have been the tomb prepared with all the preparations of a person's, uh, you know, expectation that they would be reaching the end of their life and and the whole uh, nine yards would have been would have been done for her just as we got to go here but is there any reason then and, and and I honestly I have no idea is there any reason are Nefertiti and King Tut tied together is there any reason that their tombs would have been either together or beside each other or sequential is there any is there any connection between the two of them yeah, the, the belief is that Nefertiti would have been Tut's mother. We're not certain. We haven't done the DNA. Um, so her tomb would have been recently, you know, completed, uh, relatively recently in, in, you know, the history of, of, of people's memories. Uh, and so when he died reasonably unexpectedly, uh, it would make sense to, to place him in a tomb that was already partly prepared. So there is some logic to the fact. It's not just a complete, hey, let's just throw out Nefertiti's name just because. There, yeah. there, there would be some reason to believe it could make sense. That's right. It is, uh, it is truly a fascinating story. I, I, I actually am hoping I, we went through this not that long ago. Something very much more moder- minor with the um, the Nazi gold train, where they said they were found this, this, and it was like, wow, that would be really cool. And then it turned out to be absolutely nothing. Let's hope this is way, way more interesting and way more successful than that. Uh, Dr. Andrew Wade of McMaster University, assistant professor of anthropology, really appreciate the time tonight. Thanks for doing this. Not my pleasure. I, I really, I really, really hope this turns into something. I mean, think of, we don't have these, we, when was the last time we had one of these kind of discoveries in our lifetime? I mean, there have been discoveries, of course, and they're often <clears throat> technological or medical or whatever, but to find something like this that is truly would be astounding. I, I, I'm really hoping that would be fantastic. It'll be, we'd be talking about that for, well, for a long, long time if we did, because it would be something truly, truly unique and truly outstanding. Let's hope starting in a couple of weeks, apparently they're going to begin investigating and figuring out how they're getting in there and what they're going to be doing. 
You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Canada, back in our country, back in the summer, I guess it was, or a number of months ago anyway, legalized assisted suicide. Or at the very least, we decriminalized doctor-assisted suicide. Doctors can now aid you along if you wish to end your life. But what they did, what the government did, what the federal government did when they did this is they left some gaps and they allowed the provinces to build certain rules around this, to fill in the gaps and to allow for provinces to have some say in how this is all going to be administered. It can't be completely a free-for-all, you would expect. So there's got to be some kind of rules and regulations around this. Well, in Ontario, this has become or is becoming Bill 84. Now, this is not tonight, for tonight anyway, this is not a debate about assisted suicide per se. You can have your, if you are a believer in assisted suicide, okay, that's, that will be a debate for another day, but for today, that's not the debate. And if you're against assisted suicide, that is not directly the debate today. What we want to talk about for the next few minutes is the seeming problem that falls within this Bill 84, which is that healthcare workers, doctors, and nurses will be required, it seems, to participate in assisted suicide, whether directly or indirectly, whether by doing it themselves or by directing a patient to a doctor who would do it, which becomes an issue when someone specifically someone in the healthcare industry has strong conscientious objections based on moral grounds, religious grounds, ethical grounds, Hippocratic oath grounds. They believe that killing a patient is not in line with their beliefs, their values, their medical aims. But what do you do? How is this going to work? Should a doctor, should a nurse, should someone involved in medicine whose goal it is to help people, whose Hippocratic oath, the oath they took is to not injure people, to do right by people, should they be required to participate in the ending of life, the intentional ending of life for the convenience of a patient? Dr. Ramona Coelho is with the Coalition for Healthcare and Conscience. She joins me now. Doctor, thanks for doing this tonight. Hello, doctor, you there? Yes, can you hear me? I can now. Thank you. I hit the wrong button. We got a new phone system and I still make a mess of it. No, thank you for coming on. This is is one of those topics that, uh, and I know you know this, I'm not telling you anything new. This is one of those hot button topics that gets people fired up. But here's the thing. You're a doctor. I, let, me, let me put a role situation here. I'm a patient who is dying of a terminal illness. And now that the government has said assist, doctor-assisted suicide is, is okay, I want to end my life and I want to do it on my terms. Why should you not be helping me? Well, Scott, um, first I'll, I'll just clarify that the, our college has already, even before uh, Bill 84 goes into place, uh, created a policy which is called a, a duty to refer, which is what you were talking about, this participation. So as it stands right now, um, the college is expecting us to participate, and that's what we are objecting to. Uh, but what we're not objecting to is giving the patient information. So um, when the patient comes to see me, I am willing to explore that death wish. And many times, I mean, I used to do home care, uh, half of my practice used to be with uh, shut-ins, people who were very mentally ill or had severe uh, chronic disease. 
and uh, sometimes they did have wet, uh, death wishes, and I'm talking about before it became legal. And even then, I would never shut down uh, such a request, right? I would, I would be trying to find out how we can help this patient. And I would still be willing to do all of that, that care of uh, trying to find out what it is that is driving that death wish. Um, if a patient was still firmly sure that they wanted to have um, uh, an assessment for a medical aid in dying, um, I would be able to inform them that they could have this assessment, but not through me. And that's where we're drawing the line. We would be willing to even give them a general health number for them to access the system through the regular system. But we're asking, because we don't think it's good for them, be able to stand back and not participate in this task. So it's not a question of that you are opposed to the idea of allowing them to know that it exists or obfuscating or hiding the fact that it exists. You just don't want to be part of the process. No, we're not hiding anything. I mean, um, and that would be, I mean, everyone is free. We're not trying to um, um, limit people's freedom. And it is legal, right? There's nothing that, and giving facts, um, it's okay. But when you ask me to participate in something that I think is really bad for somebody, I mean, I can't do that. I, I would, that would be against everything I'm trying to do for that patient. And I, I think on a very human level, most people understand this, right? If, if, a, if you go somewhere else, like let's make it even less serious. Like if you go to a financial advisor, you don't want them to just telling you everything that they can tell you. You want to tell that you want them to give you good advice. I can only give advice and participate in what I think is good. I can inform people of everything that exists, but I'm just not willing to go that step to participate in what I think is really a bad choice for that patient. And you know, it's funny because I was thinking of, I was trying to think before you came on, is there another example of something? And you just gave one with a financial advisor, but even in the medical community, I was trying to think, is there another example of this, and I guess the best that I could come up with, and, and tell me if I'm if I've come up with a terrible one, is if someone comes in to see you, and they have a sore, they have a problem with their abdomen. Their abdomen is killing them, and they believe wholeheartedly that their appendix is about to burst. And you examine them, and say, "No, it's not your appendix. Your appendix is fine." They have the option to go to see a, another doctor for a second opinion. Yes, but or but maybe you even, um, maybe even a different example that is more common might be someone who's seeking uh, narcotics. And uh, maybe their previous doctor gave them narcotics. You know, the, the narcotic guidelines have changed greatly, and I would say that that's something that happens commonly. A patient will come wanting a high dose of narcotics, which according to the medical guidelines and in, according to their history is not warranted. And I might have to say, no, I can't further that request for you because I don't think it's for your good. And of course, the patient can go next door and go see another doctor. That's their their right. But you, by the government and by your board, are not obligated to tell the person, I can send you to another doctor who will give you these high doses of narcotics. That would be their choice, but you're not being forced to participate in something against which you believe. And that's the funny thing here, is that the the Seed Art College is drawing the line of euthanasia. For everything else, we're told to use your conscience. If someone comes to you and asks for female uh, mutilation, genital mutilation, 
if you knew someone that was doing that in Canada, you should not refer because it's not in their best interest. You should say no. But here they're saying our ethics are trumping your ethics and you should refer because we know all and we know it's good. And in a pluralistic, charter-based society, that is not an acceptable answer when we have such varying values. So what would happen right now if someone came to you and said, I would like to have you help me end my life, and you said, no, I'm, that's not something I'm going to do. And they said, could you refer me to someone? And that's, again, not something. And you say, no, I'm not going to do that. What, what happens to you? What's the, what's the outcome? What's the, what's well, the penalty? Well, it stands right now. So in, in reality, I am a family doctor. I have a longstanding, luckily, relationship with my patients. And they understand, and they've known from previous experience that I tr- I'm really trying hard. However, if a patient decided that they were unhappy with this, even if I did it respectfully, even if I said, look, you can call telehealth and they can give you information about these services, but I don't, because I don't think it's good, I can't go there with you, they can make a college complaint. And the college has said that they are going to actually go after us. Basically, um, in different um, material that they have put forth, has said that they are, they are not going to tolerate conscientious objectors in Ontario. And when, okay, so what does that mean? What would happen to you as a doctor if you would refuse to participate? Well, I'm not 100% sure of the outcome, but I will probably, uh, the college has said they'll discipline us. What that means, whether I'll get a warning and be told I have to change my practice, and then I guess I'll have to decide, will I leave family medicine? The only person that would, people that would really hurt are my patients, right? I've been telling them as, uh, as uh, this has been progressing, what's been happening. And you, that, because, uh, you know, the college is saying we should just find places to work where this is not an issue. Like, I should retrain and maybe become a dermatologist <laughs> or a plastic surgeon. <laughs> but, you know, I take care, I work in London, and I take care of the marginalized, uh, a lot of marginalized, I take care of a lot of refugees, immigrants. Uh, I would say over 50 to 60% of even my English-speaking population have very heavy chronic medical diseases. And in terms of professionalism, most doctors won't accept my patients because they're too complicated. <laughs> and what would happen to them? And the college is not understanding that if we can sort it out with our patients, why are they trying to create a rule that governs our deepest, uh, most sacred beliefs about life and death? Well, you must... I, I know you know other doctors. I mean, doc, it's, it, every community, every business has the community within it. So you know other doctors. Is it hard to find other doctors who would participate? Or if, frankly, if there wasn't a toll-free number or something, would it be relatively easy for someone to be able to find someone who would help them with this? Well, in my mind, uh, Dying with Dignity, which has done all this advocacy and pushed for this, if they wanted to facilitate that, they could, right? They, They could create a list of doctors if they wanted to. Um, as it stands right now, and I think that it's not a bad thing, but many doctors are very unsure about medical aid and dying. And can you blame them? I mean, it was illegal not very long ago. A part of our Hippocratic Oath is not just do not harm. It's very specific about not killing a person. It's very specific. And, um, and to change that, all of a sudden, be like, well, now it's legal, so you're just going to do it. You can imagine that we have some hesitations, even from experience. As a home care doctor, I've seen patients who've had death wishes because their steroids were prescribed incorrectly, and it can take a little bit of time to figure that out, or because their family was abusing them. There are, there are many people right now in Ontario, many doctors, who are not comfortable with this. 
And um, and so there are doctors, though, and the, it shouldn't be, though, me who's responsible for a system when they decided to legalize it. Well, and, and my understanding, and I don't know if you know this is true, but my understanding is there's no other country in the world that forces doctors to act against their conscience in this way. No. And, you know, I would like to draw attention. I mean, it doesn't take very, to go back very far in history to see the really bad effects that forcing people to act against their conscience can lead to. I mean, you just have to look at all the, all the governments. Like, for example, in World War II in Germany, the doctors were forced to respond refer against, like, you know, against their conscience. They were told they didn't have a choice. They had to refer certain patients for medical experimentation. And then after, in the trial, uh, they were convicted. And they said, look, we were just following the law. We were told we couldn't follow our conscience. And they were guilty. They said, no, your conscience is higher than the law. And, you know, the 1948 Declaration of Human Rights is very clear that conscience is really important. So to have this I think the, the CPSO has to rethink. I, I feel like there is not a deep thought process that went on here, or maybe a misunderstanding of what they were doing. And I think that it really needs to be changed. It's, it's, it's very dangerous to create a culture where people are not allowed to decide these things for themselves. And I'm not talking about us obstructing. We're not obstructing anyone. We're asking to not participate, which is very different. What do other provinces do? Do, do all the provinces, as far as you know, in Canada require the same thing, or is Ontario unique? No, Ontario has been the, the, in the sense, I don't know if they were thinking that they were being progressive, but it's really out there. Um, Alberta and BC and Northwest Territories, as far as I know, most other jurisdictions have set up a self-referral method uh, purposely to not compromise their physicians who might be like me. You know, what I find so difficult about this, I suppose, is that I, we all have things that we feel very strongly about. At least I would like to think that we all have a conscience and we all have some things, whether it's this or something else, that in our life, we all have some line that we say, I'm not going to cross because I believe very strongly that that is wrong. If, if you don't, if you're listening and you don't have a line of something, there's something wrong with you, quite honestly. We have to have some kind of position, whether it's this or something else, that we say, no, that's a step too far. And in this case, I'm just just baffled by why it is that that we would say, no, you must do this. If, if, I, I mean, I could understand if all of you doctors who were against it were blocking it or trying to make it impossible to do it or directing them down a, a rabbit hole where they can't actually find their way to get help. But it doesn't sound like you're doing that. I, I, I just, I can't simply understand what the point of this would be. It seems that it's a move away from pluralism where we're allowed to have our beliefs to a group of people, these CPSO officials who think that they have supreme ethics and we should just follow that's very dangerous. Well, okay, so you are part of the uh, Coalition for Healthcare and Conscience. Who, who is that? Who is in that coalition? Oh, there are many of us. And I would say I stumbled upon this group as trying to reach out to different MPPs and write letters to the OMA and to different advocacy groups. I kept, I kept being told, hey, there's this group that's doing what you're doing. You should connect with them. And, uh, I mean, there's bigger umbrella. Like, I would say the coalition is... Uh, composed of many different groups. We have uh, and many different moral theologians from di- different faith 
backgrounds are saying the same thing. We can't do this. We, uh, we have Orthodox Jews. We have Evangelical Christians. We have the Roman Catholic um, Church as well. Um, we have um, the Salvation Army. I think there's a League of Human Rights that have joined. There's many <laughs> different groups that are joining solely under this coalition. And right so, now... Right now, there is a campaign that I know that your website is doing uh, to try and reach out to MPPs. Why now? What's going on now with this bill that this has yeah. become relevant again or, or has become so such a hot have, button now? You know, we have been working with the Ministry of Health, and they have been listening to us. And we've been trying to ask them, because the ministry actually is the body that gives our college power, Right. So in a sense, they, although they're not directly responsible for this, and somehow they're allowing this. So we were asking them, please, in Bill 84, be very clear about conscience protection for this issue. Uh, otherwise, this will be really hard for us. We're going to have to leave our profession. And the other thing we're asking for in Bill 84 is please set it up like Alberta. And, you know, you could pretend, if you wanted to, that other places are so different, that system would never apply here. Alberta? I mean, you can't say anything. We're, we're so similar. <laughs> we're the single-payer system um, in Alberta and here, and they have this, this system that works well for conscience objectors, and, and that's all we're asking. It's not very difficult. Dr. Ramona Coelho for the Coalition for Healthcare and Conscience. I really appreciate you doing this tonight. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, thank you very much, Scott. It's, um, look, I, as I said off the top, I'm not going to go into the big argument right now about whether or not you want to be in favor or against assisted suicide. That's not what this is really about. I mean, I suppose peripherally it is because that's what the, that's what the nut of the case is. But that's been legalized. That's been allowed. And the government has decided that, that assisted suicide is okay. But if you're going to allow something that controversial that you know many people don't agree with. Some do, many do, many don't. If you, though, are going to put in a law that allows for something that controversial, surely within that framework, the people who do have significant moral, ethical, religious, conscientious objections to participating, whether by directly injecting the drugs into the patient or by pointing you to a doctor who would do that, Surely there's got to be an out clause where they can say, I am, I am removing myself from participating in this. I'm not going to block it. I'm not going to picket it. I'm not going to t- lie to you as a patient and tell you it doesn't exist. But we can put a toll-free number. We can do other things. There, surely there can be a way for people who are legitimately, conscientiously objecting to step away from this. We have conscientious objections in all kinds of other facets of life, all kinds of facets of life. And as I said a moment ago, if there is nothing in your life, if there is not one moment, one place, one line that you can identify as being something you wouldn't do because you so strongly disagree with it, then I think you've got a problem. I really do. Because I believe that all of us have those things, unless you're a sociopath or a psychopath. We all have things that we say, you know what, I disagree entirely with this, 
It's something that doesn't fit with my values. And therefore, I'm not saying you can't do it because we live in a society where you can pretty much do what you want to do. You can do that. I'm just not going to facilitate it for you. I'm not going to be part of it. Is it outrageous to suggest that we should be able to allow people to have that position? I don't think so. That seems to me to make all the sense in the world. How we are getting to the point where we are now asking doctors who already, let's be honest, doctors already have all kinds of ethical and moral things to deal with when they are dealing with patients. There's all kinds of difficult scenarios that might come up. Do we really need to say to them, I'm sorry, you are not permitted to have a point of view. You are not permitted to have an opinion. You are not permitted to have morals or ethics or values. You must be a a medical automaton who must only do exactly what we tell you. You want to know something that's really interesting about this? The government that is trying to get this through and that is putting this in place, I bet you that every single member of the Ontario Liberal government has lines they refuse to cross on one thing or another. If you were to ask Kathleen Wynne to do something that she morally or ethically opposed, she would say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that. That's because she is a human being and she is someone who has ethics and morals and values and a guiding principle for her life. So if she is allowed, as well as everyone else, to say, no, this is something I really disagree with, why can doctors not have the same thing on an issue that is so controversial and so difficult and so troubling for them? It doesn't make any sense to me. It does not make any sense to me. I'm really hoping that as they go through, as the Ontario government goes through this, that they will come back to this and say, listen, all right, you cannot interfere with the process because it's legal now. You cannot interfere. But if you choose to excuse yourself from participating directly or indirectly in assisted suicide, that's okay because we have other people who believe in it and will help out and will step in. That seems to be the right way to do this, doesn't it? The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.